0: Welcome to Conversations About Care, a podcast for pediatric clinical providers. Hi, this is Sandy Hassing and I'm the Medical Director for the American Academy of Pediatrics Institute for Healthy Childhood Weight, And I'm excited to share today's conversation, which is part of our Clinical Practice Guideline Implementation Series. Throughout this series, you'll be able to hear from pediatricians across the country, many of whom have been instrumental in developing the CPG, or who have been out there in practice and working on obesity care and treatment. Our hope is that you can listen to these conversations and be inspired to think about how you might be able to integrate or improve obesity care and treatment within your practice. Stay tuned. I am delighted today to be speaking with an old friend of mine, Dr. Mark Michalski, who's a director for the Center for Healthy Weight and Nutrition at Nationwide Children's Hospital and a professor of surgery at Ohio State. But maybe even more importantly, Mark has traveled this journey with all of us as uh, we recognize the epidemic of childhood obesity, struggled in many ways to get children access to obesity treatment. To interpret the the research as it was ongoing. And Mark's been here for almost that entire trajectory, and I think we'll have a lot of fun today sort of talking about his experience and and where we are now. But before we talk about obesity treatment, I'd like to ask you, Mark, first of all, welcome, Mark, to this podcast. And uh, yeah, and ask you, how did you get interested in childhood obesity?
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Sandy. Um, it's really a, a pleasure and an honor to be asked to spend some time with you talking about uh, bariatric surgery and obesity in the pediatric population. And you know, as a, as a pediatric general surgeon who started off uh, in a career on the academic tract, when I first finished my training and was a young uh, assistant professor of surgery at University of Virginia in Charlottesville, I really, you know, sat down. My first order of business was to figure out uh, what area of medicine I really wanted to explore in in the hopes of um, you know creating some academic output to try and help science and move forward uh, care for the children that we care for. And so it turned out that when I was at UVA, I, I really uh, very fortunate to have some mentors that really helped me identify childhood obesity as an area that was really ripe for opportunities to explore in terms of therapeutic intervention, which was great. And um, I was uh, alongside some adult bariatric surgeons who were quite well-known and highly experienced who were very welcoming to uh, help me come into a field that really um, was just starting to evolve uh, at that time. And so really that's how it all got started.
0: So I really have shared some of your experience on the medical side and also shared the experience of we were looking at the adults and when something happened in the adult population, like for me, the development of liver disease, and we then said we should look for this in children, we were just amazed that this whole epidemic was pushing farther and farther down into childhood and the comorbidities of obesity were being seen. at at younger and younger ages, and it's been quite a journey. As we, we start here, I did want to take this opportunity, now that we have you on the podcast, can you give us all a little recap of where we are with bariatric surgery in the pediatric age range, where maybe a little bit where we've been and where we are, and maybe even where we might be going with
1: this? Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, you're exactly right. And I think to really understand where we are, moment it's worth um, explaining where we were 20 years ago and and when i got started in this field and you know as i mentioned being a very newly minted surgeon in Virginia at that time, you know, there really was not much more than anecdotal experience. And to your point, you know, as we know, everyone who cares for pediatric patients understands that, you know, much of pediatric medicine is an extrapolation of the adult experience and bariatric surgery, uh, as with many operations that we perform, is really no exception to that rule. And, you know, the time period of the 90s and early 2000s was really quite remarkable for some of the data that was starting to be generated and conversations that were happening even uh, around bariatric surgery in the adult world, including places like uh, NIH uh, that was helping to develop consensus guidelines and framework for how to administer that care. But really nothing existed at that time for the pediatric population. And again, really any experience was anecdotal at best. But what was happening at that time was that a very small handful of people, including myself, really start to ask the question, how would this look? what would be the appropriate application of this type of treatment uh, paradigm uh, for the pediatric population? And that's where things got started and um, it was a combination of setting up um, some research networks in order to, you know really all work together across a number of different institutions to start to gather, information um, in order to inform us and create evidence so now you fast forward you know what's happened over the last 20 years really quite a lot has really taken place um, I'm, I ha- you know I'm happy to say where now um, there is a very very uh, robust framework for application of this type of surgical therapy for children who are, Suffering from severe forms of obesity, there have been a continuously mounting body of literature that speaks to all of this. And And I think you know where we are now is is really in a very interesting place, because even though scientifically and in the world of academia, we have all come to really accept uh, the um, the importance of bariatric surgery. I think the real task at hand now is how do we disseminate this information in a way that it gets down into the hands of primary care providers so that people who are really doing the work with these patients... Pediatricians, family practitioners, um, internal medicine folks—how do these people really, I think, incorporate all of this good data that's been amassed over the last twenty years, administer it to their patients, and help guide the patients that need it towards the care that they need? Uh, and that's really where we are uh, right now.
0: So I think it's fair to say that we're all hoping, because the new obesity clinical practice guidelines are coming out, that this will be a help to our. Primary care colleagues in, in contextualizing surgery, but because uh, we're here on the podcast, can you say a few words about sort of the context in which obesity surgery and the pediatric age group resides in the bigger context of obesity treatment? Can you just sort of say, give us yeah. a snapshot of that?
1: Yeah, well, it, and and it's such an important question because you know if you look at you know uh, the surgical treatment for obesity just overall. It's, it's really quite remarkable that in the adult world, only about 1% of adult patients in the United States who meet eligibility criteria, and if you want to just use sort of the simplest measure for what that means, you know, using anthropomorphic measures, so BMI, only about 1% of people that from a, from a simplistic standpoint would qualify uh, just based on their body habitus actually move on to get bariatric surgery. The proportionality of pediatrics is, you know, strikingly less than that, you know, somewhere you, you know in the neighborhood of uh, I think 0.05% compared to the adult population. So again, you know as we we touched on a moment ago, this this becomes a, an issue of access. You know there are a number of reasons why access is limited. Uh, there's you know there's educational awareness, professional awareness, I and mean, there are also other you know challenges and roadblocks that speak to this, including a number of you know biases and uh, a lack of understanding of current data. Like every operation, it, you know, insurance coverage is a vital aspect of being able to gain access to surgical intervention and. In a very similar way as, as we've seen in the adult world, you know, access through insurance authorization is often challenging. Projections are off, often based on you know, a combination of old data or biases that really I think leave our population in a very vulnerable state. Uh, and again, um, you know, I think at this point, as the science continues to be worked out, we really need to work on, you know, across a, a number of different fields, including again professional education policy and advocacy.
0: So Mark, where are we with the actual type of surgery that is being most performed in pediatric population? Because I know we've evolved through multiple kinds of surgeries.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, uh, without getting too uh, down into the weeds about the uh, evolution of bariatric surgery, which has been around since the early 1960s, most people listening to this podcast will uh, you know, have some familiarity with the term gastric bypass. And the gastric bypass is an operation that still to this day is, is very much considered the gold standard. It's a safe, it's an efficacious operation. Um, and again, it really came on the scene in the 60s and early 70s as being the most prominent operation. And that operation has been used in in many children that have undergone bariatric surgery. But as you've mentioned, there is an evolution and has been an evolution of, you know, within uh, procedural context over the last several decades. Currently in the United States, the most common operation is what's called the vertical sleeve gastrectomy when i say overall i really mean in adults and in the pediatric population as well you know and this probably will not be the final note on on what is the best operation i think that as additional information and data is accrued you know this will help inform and enlighten future potential options and modifications so even though right now, um, most children that are considering a bariatric intervention would know about or and or be offered a sleeve gastrectomy, that may not be the case in the future.
0: So Mark, I'm a pediatrician, say in practice, and I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, you know, I really want to look more into this option for my patients. Where do I even start? Like, how do I know I'm connecting with a, a program that I I don't want to use the word trust, but, you know, I can trust the program. I'm, how do I get started on this journey here?
1: Yeah. I mean, there, that's a great question. And I mean, there are a number of resources and you've already mentioned the clinical practice guideline um, that, um, you know, will have uh, uh, come out by the time people are listening to this conversation. And really one of the highlighted areas of those guidelines with regards to this type of care is that you as a pediatrician really need to know what your resources are and where to refer patients for appropriate care. You know, a simple answer to that is to reach out to the American College of Surgeons. Like many of the accreditation programs that the American College has, there is a bariatric accreditation program that lists all of the bariatric programs in the United States uh, for adults and children. And, you know, one thing that's important to understand is that centers that provide care for children sort of come in a couple of different flavors. There are centers like mine at big, tertiary care children's hospitals that only offer bariatric surgery to the pediatric population. But there are actually many, many more adult comprehensive centers that also qualify to administer care to the pediatric population. So, you know, there is a good chance that a pediatrician who is seeking out care for uh, or on behalf of a patient or family would be able to locate somebody or a, 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 a center within their region using the American College of Surgeons as a resource. You know, and uh, other you know, local networks that exist, the ASMBS, which is American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgeons, also should serve as a resource for primary care providers looking for information on referrals. ASMBS has many state chapters, much like the AAP. That would be another great place to go looking for information.
0: Thanks, Mark. And I don't want to forget to mention the policy that the AAP has on pediatric bariatric surgery, which gives folks a lot of just background and reference materials to to ground themselves in what, what to look for, what to expect, what this is all about. I wanted to, you know, as a surgeon, what would be your ideal relationship with a primary care physician who as a patient, they're concerned about how would how has it worked for you that relationship in that joint care of the patient? How would you like it to work? What can pediatricians sort of maybe expect or aim for in that relationship?
1: Yeah, you know this is a great uh, area of discussion, and I mean we in our center are very much focused on maintaining the patient's medical home, also maintaining robust two way communication with the patient's primary care provider. I think that, you know, that that seems like a given in any situation. But, you know, in reality, sometimes patients come to us and they have come to us through through a self-referral pathway where it's possible that either A, they don't have a primary care physician, or their primary care physician has not really been part of the referral process. Um, so and in fact, in some instances, you know, we have helped establish a medical home for a patient outside of our center. So, you know, uh, I think the most important thing is for a primary care provider to find a center that is equipped and willing to keep lines of communication open. Because as you know, patients like this are, you know, have many, many challenges that oftentimes go beyond just the, the, uh, the most obvious challenge of being severely obese and being a candidate for bariatric surgery. Everything is interconnected. And so, you know, I, I think that acknowledging that and working on communication both before, immediately after, and in the long term uh, with a patient and their, you know, medical home is, is really key.
0: So, Mark, you know, I'm imagining myself and I've been in this position having run a weight management clinic. I was sitting there and and thinking to myself, having done the background, um, I, I want to refer my patient for surgery. But in reality, I'm referring my patient for evaluation. That's right. Surgery. And I'd like you to yeah. talk a little bit about that because I think we sometimes think that we are making... You know, we're referring to surgery and, and that's going to automatically happen. But can you talk yeah. a bit about what actually happens when you get that referral?
1: Sure, of course. And this is really key. In fact, not even an hour ago, uh, you know, I, I just wrapped up a call with, uh, with our team and we talked about our active patients and our patients that are on hold. And, and the lists are, are probably, you know, of equal number. And I think your point is really very, very important. A referral is just that. It is a referral. And I know that, you know, in and amongst other sort of encounters that you have with primary care physicians who are only just learning about the possibility of bariatric surgery, um, are interested, but are concerned that they're consigning their patient, uh, you know, to a pathway that, that may be more than they can handle or maybe isn't appropriate. You know, this is a multidisciplinary care model. And like any multidisciplinary care model that even involves surgical intervention, there is a lot of analysis that goes on, communication with the family, again, with the primary home, and with the family. I mean, the family and the patient are are a very important part of this process. Is a patient ready is the family ready is the surgeon ready um you know is is there a an ideal support mechanism around this individual and around this family that's going to increase the probability of a you know a successful outcome and so, you know, referral is, is not a guarantee that an operation is going to happen. Now, I think what's important to understand about that also is that even in instances where a patient and a family is told, you know, we don't think that you're necessarily ready right now, that doesn't mean they'll never be ready. We have a proportion of patients within the the, the center that I work at that, that stay connected. And even though, you know, a fast track, straight, you know, you know ideal patient will take six or eight or 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 nine months to get through. We have patients that have been with us for a year, two years, even three years, until that patient has come to a place where you know the stars have aligned and it's time to move forward because everything is lined up. So you're right. It's a referral, and um, not every referral winds up being a candidate for you know a surgical intervention.
0: So I think that's that's really important to keep in mind and reassuring because this it is really a process. It's not a cliff you jump off. It's actually a process. I did want to ask you about, now that we've talked about how we communicate and get our patients a referral and what that evaluation looks like, what does the post-op life look like for a bariatric surgery patient? Because I always find it helpful to try to understand the process when I'm talking to a patient so I can at least have an idea, you know, what that trajectory would look like. What does that look like for a patient and family post-op?
1: Right. I think that post-op care and talking about post-op care in the pre-operative time period is 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 really very important. There are a couple of things that come to mind. You know, I think when you talk about bariatric surgery in general, regardless of the age group that you are you know, specifically talking about. I think that long-term care is key. And that doesn't necessarily mean that a patient needs to be seen by a surgeon, but that patient needs to you know, understand that this is a construct where um, an ideal post-operative patient should plan to connect with someone uh, who has some understanding of bariatric surgery and obesity management pretty much for the rest of their life. You know, losing this kind of weight, um, it obviously has tremendous benefits, but there are some pitfalls as well um, that, that really need to be attended to, including protein and, uh, you know, uh, vitamin malnutrition, things like that, that, you know, can accumulate uh, over uh, years after having had a bariatric operation. Once in a while, you know, there can be a, uh, you know, a, a, a late-breaking complication uh, that might require some additional intervention down the road. I mean, you know, these are safe uh, and effective operations, but, you know, this is not like having your gallbladder out where it's one and done. You Mm -hmm. see a surgeon uh, immediately afterwards, and then you go on, you know, you go on about your business for the rest of your life. If you're a bariatric surgery patient, you know, this is really part of your life now. And to understand you know, the the benefits and, you know, potential complications down the road, it's important to stay connected. With pediatrics in general, I think there's another nuance here that really is worth uh, mentioning, and that's transition of care. Mm -hmm. You know, many of our patients, you know, are teenagers, so, you know, 13, 14, 15, and beyond, but, you know, in the blink of an eye, kids grow up uh, and it's not it's not going to be appropriate for a 30 year old in most instances to be coming to the children's hospital. And so in our center and many centers like mine, we start that conversation very, very early. We tell patients and families that there is a transition plan and, you know, we provide resources for local adult uh, bariatric providers that that patient and family you know may want to access when that transitionary period uh, comes along. And then finally, again, because you're talking about in most instances teenagers who become young adults, this is also a very dynamic part of life. This is when people get married and they move, they move away, they move out of state. you know again, uh, just because you had your operation in Ohio doesn't mean you leave all your troubles in Ohio, either. You know, you have, this, this has to be something that's attended to, you know, in a thoughtful way. It shouldn't be burdensome. And, you know, I think it just helps to have a set of guidelines uh, that will really help you know, chart a, a safe and healthy lifetime after a bariatric intervention.
0: So Mark, you know, the AAP has come out with a policy statement on metabolic bariatric surgery in the pediatric age group. Can you talk a little bit, Uh, you were intimately involved with that. Can you talk a little bit about that policy?
1: Yes. So uh, in 2019, we or the AAP uh, published a policy statement and technical report, accompanying technical report on metabolic and bariatric surgery in the pediatric population. And really, this is a really important document that I think every primary care provider involved in pediatric care should really uh, take a moment to review. I think that the tendency in surgical science is to continue to talk about surgical science within the surgical environment. And this really Mm -hmm. marked our ability to get out of our own echo chamber and to come to the AAP and really, I think, did a very, very thorough vetting of evidence and information that's swirling around about bariatric surgery in children and really helped create a framework that really spells out the important features of this type of therapeutic intervention. So now that the uh, CPG has come out, I think it is really important for primary care providers to also reference the 2019 policy statement, again, as another very important tool and resource for uh, patients that may qualify uh, or are seeking information or referral for uh, surgical intervention.
0: Thank you, Mark, and I know that policy is, is on the AAP website and available to all, all of our members. So, Mark, uh, we're closing in on our time, but I have one more question. You know, when I first started in obesity medicine, we called this bariatric surgery, and now we're calling it metabolic and bariatric surgery. Can you help us just briefly kind of up get up to date on the metabolic?
1: So... Uh, This was a conscious decision made probably going back about 20 years ago by really the the leadership of uh, this type of surgical science here in the U.S. and, and elsewhere. And let's remember that, you know, obesity and certainly the most severe forms of obesity, although the most obvious effect is, you know, the anthropomorphic impact that this has on patients. but. We all know this is much, much more. And obesity is tied into so much else that's going on within our body. And we think about the cardio metabolic implications, you know, patients that are severely obese. You know, there's clear evidence that m- many of them are in a state of low-grade inflammation. This impacts, of course, we know things like, uh, you know, uh, pre-diabetes and frank, frank state of diabetes. So these are all aspects of metabolic health. And so it was felt, and I I agree wholeheartedly that uh, it, it was important to, I, I think, modify the language here to make people understand that we're not just talking about weight loss for the sake of weight loss. We're talking about weight loss for the sake of metabolic health, you know, moving forward. And 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 you know, I I think that that really um, helps clarify what this is all about.
0: Thank you, Mark. And uh, before we close uh, our our time out here, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our our audience today? Anything you'd like to tell them or, or meditate yeah. on? or
1: <laughs> Thank you so much. And again, I really, really am, am so happy to have been invited to, to chat with you about this. You know, I think uh, what really comes to mind for me, and I've already alluded to it earlier in the conversation, is advocacy, access and advocacy. As clinicians and healthcare providers, we really to our patients to be educated and provide information that will help our patients live a long and healthy life and that includes things like metabolic and bariatric surgery which at first glance may seem uh, radical and uh, you know and and, and and make people somewhat uncomfortable there's so much good data out there now and really the Aap has done a phenomenal job advocating for this form of therapy along with every other, you know, aspect of obesity prevention and treatment. So uh, please advocate for your patients. Um, and they will appreciate it.
0: Spoken like a true pediatric healthcare provider. You know, that's Thanks. where our heart is, is advocating for our patients. Well, Mark, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time with us today. Uh, again, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thanks again for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation today with Mark Michalski. I hope that you were able to take away some practical strategies on how to move obesity care and treatment forward in your practice. As a reminder, there are many resources to support your capacity building and CPG implementation efforts, which you can find on our website, www.ap.org/obesitycpg.
2: Information, resources, or opinions expressed during the Conversations About Care podcast series are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The topics included in these podcasts do not indicate an exclusive course of treatment or serve as a standard of medical care. Variations, taking into account individual circumstances, may be appropriate. The primary purpose of this podcast is to explore common themes related to quality pediatric care. From the perspective of clinicians. This podcast series does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted toward the content of this podcast without the expressed approval and knowledge of the American Academy of Pediatrics podcast developers is forbidden. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast.